Well, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, and Brian Andrew Jasinski. The original crew. Back, back and together, in guys, right? Guys, <laughs> so happy curated, to have you here with me today. Crew today. So today we have a bit of a special episode that we're going to be talking about. And ironically, our fourth member that was meant to join us on this podcast was David from our team. But David, poor thing, is home with a bit of a virus. So we've changed gears and we're actually going to be talking about something that is affecting the international community, as well as many of our B2B clients within the transportation industry. And that is the trickle-down effect of the coronavirus. And I hope that's not what David has. <laughs> and hopefully he'll be back and on the men by the time we actually air this podcast. But it's no surprise that when you have a country like China or any country with a population of that size that's being hard hit by an epidemic, a health epidemic, that it's going to put ripples through the economy worldwide. And so we wanted to dissect that for people because it's really interesting. I get a lot of questions because we work in transportation pretty extensively around why does it matter? Why are we starting to hear that you know health issues like the coronavirus are going to really impact things like retail or distress at the ports and things like that. And so we wanted to break it down based on things that we're seeing and hearing and just talk a little bit about the impact and where specifically we're seeing impact right now and what implications that can have for years to come. So Eric, can you give us a bit of a lay of the land? What is going on with the coronavirus? At the beginning of 2020, we heard about this virus that originated in the Chinese city of Wuhan. And right now we're seeing about 80,000 cases worldwide, 53 cases in the U.S. And this is data as of February 25th from Johns Hopkins. They're updating the site frequently. So check out their website for the latest insights related to this virus and how it's spreading. They also shared that there are approximately 2,700 people that have died worldwide, but none in the U.S., that said, the CDC has warned everyone that it's not a matter of if it's coming, it's when it will come. And this is really reinforced by the fact that today, February 26, San Francisco declared a state of emergency in relation to this virus spreading. So it is here in the country. Um, obviously, we've already heard about cases, but the fact that a city of the magnitude of San Francisco has declared this is, is quite concerning. And I will say, you know, we're nowhere near San Francisco at the time of recording, but each and every day I'm getting, as the CEO of the company, emails about how can employers brace themselves for the coronavirus? What should you be thinking about in terms of structuring or supply um, securing um, on behalf of your staff so that you know, you're know you keeping the ability to spread as low as possible? So I don't know if that's too paranoid or a little bit preemptive, but the estimates are saying that the vaccine is most likely not going to be available for another 18 months. So if the hypothesis is that the virus is coming here, and we know that the vaccine is probably about 18 months off, there's a large window where this could spread. And so I think people are definitely on high alert. And it's no surprise that in places like San Francisco, being on the coast, you do have a lot of international travel between Asia and the U.S. that they would be in a position where they'd be more vulnerable. And we've already heard about so many countries like Israel and Italy that have instituted travel bans for China. So it, it's something that we're going to see other countries start to implement. We're even hearing of local 
local employers here in Cleveland um, that have large international components to their business, um, either because of research or trade, that are starting to see people coming back from China and having to do some intensive screenings because there is no travel ban at this point. And, you know, there are people coming back even to our own city that may have been exposed. And so I think that, you know, that's the question, right? How do you handle this in the short term while we brace ourselves for the cases, which by all estimates seem to be coming here domestically? And before that vaccine is available, you know, what what do we do? What do we do to protect ourselves? So that's in terms of the people piece and the movement piece. But I think the other question here is, what happens with goods? Because as we all know, like it or not, the majority of consumer electronics, automotive, and other industries rely heavily on China's manufacturing sector to be able to fuel the retail component of what people are buying and selling in this country and all over the world. So Eric, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what that lull in manufacturing might mean. So right now we're hearing that there are about 5 million companies worldwide that could be affected by this. That's data from a recent study by Dunn and Bradstreet Research. And this impact is also evident in the fact that in many of the top 500 companies across the world, in their recent board meetings conducted in Q1, if you look at the transcripts, 38% of them talked about coronavirus during those board meetings. So it's something that's on their minds. Many of them had not created plans to prepare for this, and they're more in a reactive state. So this concern is obviously affecting their operations, but from a financial perspective, it's also going to result in Q1 and Q2 earnings that are going down, and we've already started to see this happen. And that also maps closely to what we're hearing from places like the Wall Street Journal that are reporting that the Port of Los Angeles is reporting that month over month, there's been a 25% drop in container volumes this month. 25%. So when you think about the fact that that's the busiest port in the United States. That's crazy. And that's where they're bringing in the majority of the manufactured products and goods from China. So we're not talking about necessarily raw commodities, although that's a part of this conversation. That means that there is going to be a shortage or many shortages in many supply chains. And so that's going to have a sharp effect on economies across the globe. Yeah, from a manufacturing perspective, there are concerns with Jaguar and Land Rover. They've already said that they're not able to produce a lot of their vehicles because they're not able to get the parts to its British factories. You're also hearing from Apple that the production of iPhones will be slowing down because obviously a lot of those devices are produced in China. So that's there are issues there as well. And then with Facebook, they're even slowing down production for their Oculus Quest virtual reality headset. They plan to get that out into the marketplace, but now they'll have to slow down production. So it's really affecting all areas of manufacturing and even to the point of retail, by no surprise. Home Depot has already said that they're expecting lower sales, and and that's largely due to the fact that they source around 30% of their products from China. I think some of it, too, it, it comes from both sides of the equation. We're looking at it from the side of the manufacturing is being affected because of what's being produced in China. But you also have to look on the consumer side. There's a lot of fear. People, the first question is, is it safe to be purchasing these items from China. Can the virus be contracted through buying an iPhone? That's definitely a question that's out there. The coronavirus is something that's you contract it through direct being in, in close proximity to somebody with the virus. It's not going to live on a device or it's not going to live on an article of clothing. But there is that fear and it's a very founded fear you know, from both sides of the equation. Yeah, and it's wild too because if you compare it to the flu, if you have the flu and you interact with others, you will most likely affect 1.3 people. That's the average. When you look at the coronavirus, it's actually somewhere between 1.5 and 3.5 people. Wow. 
So it's just that contagious level is unfounded and it just rightly so that people have fear around this. And that's why right now, because there is no cure, governments like that of China are instituting heavy quarantines. And so when you take it back to manufacturing, the other thing, to bring it back to Brian's point, is that one of the reasons why goods can't move out of China is because of the quarantines. There are reports that because port workers and truck drivers picking up containers from the ports, because they aren't leaving their homes, or in some cases, there's a lot of fear about how to contract the virus. They don't want to be near the goods that may have been produced in a factory where someone may have been infected. There's just this massive amount of yard congestion at the depots. And so they're not able to get the goods out, so they're not able to ship the goods across the ocean. There's a lot of reasons why these goods are getting caught where they're at. Some is fear, certainly, and some is just because of policy changes and making sure that people who may or may not have been exposed are not leaving their homes. At the end of the day, what it means is that goods are either not being produced or if they've already been produced, they are just standing wherever they are, and we have no idea when they'll begin to move again. So as we move from manufacturing to the retailers, what we're hearing is that a lot of these retailers really do want to stay open. So for example, Walmart, you know, they referenced the idea of hurricanes in the U.S. and just the need to be open to help people in these situations. So they really want to be there to obviously protect their employees. So they're being thoughtful about that, but they want to be there to help people get the products they might need for any prescriptions, etc., to get through this time in need. So these retailers are also recognizing the need to close down some of these locations. So for example, McDonald's has closed several hundred of its 3,000 locations in China. They expect to close more as this ramps up, but they really do want to try to keep it open to continue their services. You know, and we talked about this recently in terms of retailers and the new services that they've been introducing, such as curbside pickup or increasing their frequency of curbside pickup or even delivery. I think that there are kind of bits and pieces of social infrastructure or retail infrastructure that have been introduced in the last few years that actually could really support this situation as it evolves. At least where we're at in the U.S., there are many markets, maybe not so much so in rural communities, but certainly in urban cores where you have some options. But at the same time, it doesn't really equally apply to everyone. It really depends on your socioeconomic status, your age, and that's a big thing that's come into the conversation as well. So when you look at the stats as far as who's being affected by the coronavirus, right now it's disproportionately skewed towards older individuals. There aren't so many cases that they've so far identified in children or younger adults, but it really does increase in frequency the older you are, which shouldn't be a surprise because most likely that means that your immune system may not be working as optimally as somebody who's younger and in better health. What that means is if you're older, if you're socioeconomically disadvantaged and in a place where you may not be able to get access to things like medication, you are opened up to being more susceptible of having to go into public spaces, potentially increase your exposure just in order to do simple things like get your medications. Again, this is an evolving situation, but I think that because of some of these additional services that retailers have supplied, when it comes to need-based items, at least we're able to think about for those that are most susceptible among us, I'd like to think that these retailers will be prioritizing them first and figuring out a way to make sure that nobody's health is in further decline because they, they can't get out in public for risk of exposure. Yeah. You look at this from a number standpoint. We're talking about how businesses and retailers are being affected by this. So clearly, Hallie Decker, what you were just saying, first and foremost, what's important here is the fact that this 
vaccine is not predicted to be released for over a year. So there's just overall a lot of uncertainty, as we talked about earlier, be it those who are at the manufacturing end of the scale, the importing and exporting of the materials, and then ultimately the consumer. If you take, for example, luxury brands, they had a very strong past two years, and analysts were already predicting that 2020 would have a bit of a soft landing in terms of their profits. Then cut to January of 2020, where all of this has now hit. It's an interesting comparison to make as people are comparing the coronavirus a lot to SARS and its impact, its trajectory, and how it affected markets and and the retail atmosphere. But we're dealing with two very different eras. In 2003, once the SARS epidemic lifted, it didn't take long for consumers in China to once again stock up on these luxury goods, such as a Hermes scarf or a Gucci bag, where they're spending $2,500 on a bag. Clearly, investors are optimistic, hoping that that's going to be the case. However, there's a big difference between 2003 and now here we are 17 years later, where Chinese tourists, the money that they spend not only traveling, but also in their hometown has increased exponentially. The Chinese consumer is considered a force in the luxury goods market, a market which is upwards of $300 billion. They make up for 35% of that market. When the SARS epidemic was happening in 2003, they were only considered 2%. Mm. So the, the impact there alone is a huge difference, as well as the people that are traveling from other countries to China, where a lot of purchases and investments in this luxury market are made. So there is really not apples to apples in that case. So I think that's really encouraging. I will say that one of the things that I'm seeing on the B2B side is that, you know, there are concerns that even when there is a bounce back in terms of shipping frequency and the movement of goods, there are concerns that this decrease in volume is something that may not completely rebound. So I think what's going to happen, you know, and by some estimates, what I'm seeing is that this epidemic could reduce annual revenue by 10 to 25 percent this year. And that's assuming this is according to Financial Times. That's assuming that this epidemic comes under control by the end of March. But in the case that it may last longer, which is likely, it may even be more. By some analysts thinking, what that means is that, you know, we may never actually rebound to the place that we were at before. So given what you just said, Brian, I think that what could potentially happen is that we go into a situation of simple economics and supply and demand. And so when it comes to luxury goods that are already scarce to begin with, and the inability to be able to shop these luxury goods in multiple retail locations, it's going to create scarcity that's going to drive demand up. What becomes really Equally important here is where do the goods go? If increased shipping frequency never rebounds to where it was before, which is a big if, then I think what ends up happening is that the goods, no matter where they're produced, and these brands are going to have to be really strategic about where those goods get placed. So, for example, there are a lot of retailers, particularly in the luxury category, that have been introducing flagship stores in China, which is one of the things that's been driving up the luxury market in China. So no longer do they necessarily have to travel to places like New York to be able to buy that Gucci bag. They're able to do it at a flagship store in China, and there have been some major investments there. And so the question becomes, where do those goods go? And then what does that do to the price of those goods? So that bag that's $2,500 today, maybe $5,000 next year, just because of the scarcity of the demand. demand. Yeah. yeah. Well, just a good example is Burberry. There are stores in China. The number of shoppers visiting had plummeted 
80%. And 24 of their 64 stores in China were closed. So that right there speaks to what you're saying about the demand. Suddenly you don't have the wide availability to access what you may be looking for. As you said, in China, there's so many options and so many, the ability to curate these items that they may be looking for is suddenly reduced. And so, yeah, there could be that bounce back where it's creating that positive supply and demand effect. Another thing in that area that I'm really curious about, and this will be something that we'll be watching, is is the upside in this. And it's horrible to talk about that when you're talking about a worldwide health epidemic. But by some estimates, because of the decrease in shipping, domestic oil consumption in China has fallen as much as 25% in February. So what that means is that, obviously, if less people are purchasing crude oil and less people are using that crude oil, then less pollution is being placed into the air, into the environment in a country that's already a known offender when it comes to major pollution. The positive in that is that there may be some kind of impact on the environmental quality of things in China. So that's one thing to think about. I think the other thing that I'm curious to watch is, again, how does that, because of some of the things that have been said about the long-term bounce back on the economy, so what will that mean? How much will it bounce back? In what areas? Where are these trade routes going to go? And and what is that going to mean for the economy and retailers and brands in the long run, or even in the next two to four years? The other thing that I'm curious to watch in the next 12 to 24 months is what this is going to mean for domestic manufacturing in the U.S., Because you cannot ship goods in, and there are a lot of different factors here. Obviously, a big thing in the last few years, particularly at a time when the current political administration is talking a lot about increasing domestic manufacturing, a big part of that conversation is, are we ready? We have a lot of factories sitting out there that are just not modernized. They're not ready to produce the small parts, the goods, even in automotive, these large items. They're not ready. They're not up to snuff to be able to do that. You can't just flick on a switch and be ready to do that tomorrow. And so how quickly could we get up and running with domestic manufacturing? So I think that's a question that's being asked a little bit right now, but it may be something we're forced to think a little bit more about if what we're seeing is a virtual shutdown in shipping between China and the U.S. So I think that's one thing I'm going to be watching to see what does that mean? What starts getting manufactured here? Does it expedite some of those efforts to be able to produce more things domestically? And then what's the ripple effect of that economically, environmentally, and from a health perspective overall for communities here in the U.S.? All right. So there's a lot there, right? There's a lot there for manufacturers, shippers, retailers. But what does it mean? So Eric, what do you think? What do you, you know, what are the things that we need to be looking at in the, on the long term? The most obvious takeaway from this is the effect on sales and earnings and revenue. Um, so we're going to see a loss in Q1 and Q2. I, I think there will be there will be a rebound in Q3, Q4. But as we all know, this is election year, so I think we'll see the market turn there as well. So my question is, does this become the catalyst for the recession that everyone keeps talking about? If so, that would happen then Q1 of 2021. So I, in general, though, this this virus has greatly affected revenue and we'll continue to see that over the, the next year. Well, again, looking to SARS as that touchstone of, I think that's a lot of people are looking to to 2003 as the closest touchstone to what we're dealing with. So if you were to look at the effect that it had in terms of the economy, it was considered the second worst plunge in price earnings in the history of the retail sector. The only thing that trumps that dip is the 2008 financial crisis. So that is completely in line with what you're saying, Eric, is that it's really a catalyst 
pushing further the recession that we see looming as it is. However, is this moving it forward at a quicker clip, if you will. And then it's the perfect storm and we're also pushing through an election year and come fall, that's going to have a lot of whatever the turnout of the election is, is going to have a lot of reparations in terms of how the economy reacts to that. Absolutely. And I think that that learning will inspire the C-suite to reimagine their sales strategies. So let's change our product and service mix, such as offset services. Uh, We talked about Walmart earlier. They're able to really push their product pickup and delivery in this this instance. Obviously, delivery overseas is a completely different challenge, but domestically, that's something that they could definitely focus on to continue to stay active in this timeframe. The other thing is capitalize on this marketplace shift and kind of insulate themselves from the dip. Brian talked about this, obviously, with the fashion brands. Where marketing can come in as well is creating demand for products that actually do exist in a stockpiled way locally. What's ironic about all of this is that in the past few years, what we've been talking about is that warehouse space has been at an absolute premium for B2B businesses and that there isn't enough to go around. The rents have been increased, which means that retailers have been stockpiling certain goods in warehouses. So what's out there? What should you be increasing demand for? And what should you be marketing more heavily because it exists in a certain market? That's where businesses can be thinking about this. And it's an opportunity for them to be, as Eric said, creating different demand or revenue streams based on what they do have at their disposal. And I'm sure many CEOs are thinking this way, but I also think that there are a lot of CEOs that rest on their laurels and they're looking at sales month over month and year over year and thinking about things. And the the smart ones may even be looking on four-year cycles to take a look at what happened in the last election year, but they may not be, as Brian mentioned, looking back to 2003 and the major impact that this had. And frankly, that's the comparison that we all need to be doing right now because this won't be the last time. I actually think it presents an opportunity for CEOs to be more creative and innovative and think about how are we doing business. I think that it's always a negative when something happens like this in the business cycle, but if you use it as a moment to kind of pull out of the weeds and think about how can I use this as an opportunity to really reimagine things, it's it's the worst case scenario. You hear that term thrown around a lot in business. It is the worst case scenario. So sometimes that's what forces creativity because you can't do business as usual. That would be my advice to anybody who finds themselves sitting in the CEO's chair to just think about how do I do this differently and what could this mean for my business as we look to the future. It encourages that divergent thinking. Absolutely. So obviously we just talked about the insights for business, but if we think about this from a global perspective, what can we learn from this outbreak that we could use in the future? One, we need leadership. The CDC obviously doesn't have the same funding that it has had in the past. We need someone to really rise to the occasion and lead us through this challenging time. We also need cooperation globally. There's a lot of fingers pointing at each other, especially around the idea of uh, misinformation and who is sharing what data points. So we really need transparency and communication and partnership. And then lastly, the supply chain needs to continue to build resiliency around this. It's one of the trends that we said would happen in 2020. So this is just another example of that. First, the tariffs, now coronavirus, what's next? It's not an easy challenge to solve, but it's something that we need to continue to think about and and make sure that our supply chains are resilient.
need a bigger boat. This episode of Open Swim, My Bigger Boat goes out to Doctors Without Borders, the international medical humanitarian organization that is known for its response throughout the world, announced on Valentine's Day that it will be providing specialized medical protective equipment to the Wuhan Hospital in the capital of China's Hubei province. They will be sending 3.5 metric tons of medical protective equipment from its supply center in Brussels through the Hubei Charity Federation to a major Wuhan hospital, one of the hospitals that are on the forefront of treating patients with the coronavirus. So this episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Mary Barra, who is the CEO of General Motors. And the reason why is because I know a few years ago, and particularly in the last year, she's come under fire for making some major moves on behalf of the company. And I think that she's made some really bold, big, controversial moves that hopefully are going to pay off. And especially in the light of the conversation around domestic production, one thing that she's done in the last year is she's been at the helm while they've reimagined the electrification of their fleet, so to speak. Just recently, they've brought back, love it or hate it, the Hummer. The Hummer is now going to be an all-electric vehicle, which in addition to being a very cult favorite and a brand that our previous firm, where Eric and I met, actually, we were the agency of record for Hummer when it was an independent brand. I think it was a bold PR move for the company to say that this former gas guzzler is now going to run on sunshine and rainbows, essentially. (laughs) So I think it's going to be interesting to see how the public receives this. And hopefully this will be a halo vehicle for future efforts for General Motors. And we'll see much more electrification of future vehicles follow in its path. One additional thing that I think is interesting about the Hummer is that it's going to be domestically produced. According to recent accounts, we've actually learned that the Hamtramck factory, just outside of Detroit, is going to be the location where this vehicle is produced. And so in addition to picking up on the trend, of more environmentally friendly products that consumers want to buy. They're also picking up on the trend and frankly, in light of this conversation, the necessity of producing goods domestically. So I think it was a big, bold move and I'm hopeful that it's going to pay off for everyone involved. This episode, My Bigger Boat goes out to the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, for his pledge of $10 billion to fight climate change. By addressing issues with our climate, we can also improve the health and well-being of those around us. So I salute these efforts and hope to see other CEOs support this cause as it is one that we should all embrace. This episode is in support of MedWish. MedWish International is a not-for-profit organization that saves lives and the environment by repurposing discarded medical supplies and equipment to provide humanitarian aid to people in need. Learn more at medwish.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey. 